Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to the FT Money Show, brought to you by Investors Chronicle and FT Money. Hello and welcome to the FT Money Show. In this week's programme, as more banks are affected by the credit crisis, what should shareholders and investors do? Why are so many exchange-traded funds being launched and what do they all do? Which emerging markets are fund managers still keen on and which shares are they buying in those markets? And we have some good news and bad news about dentists. I'm Matthew Vincent and I'll be bringing you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with the help of a cast of thousands, or at least four, of my colleagues from FT Money. So joining me to start with, uh, we have Steve Lodge. Hello. And Dan Thomas. Hello. And let's start with uh, the money news. Uh, we've seen more fallout from the credit crisis this week. We've seen heads rolling at certain big banks. And I think the question that all private investors are asking is, how is this going to affect my shareholdings in bank stocks, for example? And, Dan, you've been looking at this uh, this very week. Um, what's the view? Well, you're right. It has been another punishing week for financials and uh I think I think most advisors are suggesting that people run for the hills. To be honest, it's it's, it's not looking particularly good out there, and, and uh, I don't think people are predicting better things for the next quarter, certainly, and maybe two or three quarters going forward. So I think most people would say at the moment. Uh, I say most people because there are fund managers who are sticking to their guns and saying financials are good on, on various criteria. But I think for most people, it's it's, it's a time to sit out the storm. Certainly not buy into it, and and if you do have some excessive holdings in the areas, perhaps sort of hedge them with, with, with moving elsewhere. I suppose that's the problem. A number of uh, private investors will have holdings in this area. God, yes. I mean, Northern Rock, people will have been looking back to the spring when the Northern Rock shares were worth £12, yeah, 12 now £1.60 or something. Alliance and Leicester near halved. Halifax, HBOS, the most widely held share in Britain. I can't help thinking it's a bit too late to get out. Bearing in mind, there's, apart from Northern Rock, there's actually been very little bad news from the main UK banks. That's what we don't know what's going to happen next, I suppose. It's the classic sort of iceberg case, whether or not the bad news is, is, is all below the water. If there's going to be more Morgan Stanley's big US investment banks reporting losses, if there's going to be fears over RBS, Bradford, Bingley, Barclays going to the Bank of England, then this is going to hit the share prices far harder. And you've got to ask yourself, if, if, if you do have a huge amount of stocks in these, these banks, whether or not that's a good idea. That's the problem, isn't it? It's this sort of slow drip 
effects of a little bit more news, a little bit more news, and the, and the sector just gets hit each time. And all of those stocks mm. that, Steve, you've just mm. mentioned, uh, a lot of them held because of demutualization, yeah. all getting hit every time. Well, it is. It's this lack of transparency, isn't it? It's what we first heard of when, when people started talking about the credit crisis. But we're now, what, three months on? And we're just starting to see these, these little dribbled bits of news that our exposure was this, we shouldn't have done that, and so on. But I've not heard anything from Halifax, I think, for example, you know, the most widely held stock. I've not heard anything from Abbey's owner, Santander. I think mm. I'm right in saying I may be wrong. But I think whatever the case is, I don't think investors as a whole have total transparency of this credit crisis. And are they going to get it before Christmas? Maybe it's not. not. No, I think that's the problem is that sentiment, isn't it? Sentiment is just plummeting and, and uh, that's always going to be the case as long as there's no information to uh, to change that i think on the, on the other side also we've got um, a situation where most people are predicting a, a consumer market downturn in the next uh, next year going forward and possibly a likely rising of debt which in itself will impact banks profits and banks you know underlying figures which on its own might not be a good thing for banks anyway mm -hmm. let alone the fact mm -hmm. that we've got potential bad news coming from the US all the time. But one counter view shortly is these super high yields now. I didn't mm. look at them before we started uh, today, but uh, I imagine you can get 6% or more from banks that ain't going to cut their dividends. The mm. likes of Halifax, famous last words, ain't going to cut their dividends. But that's a pretty good yield, a pretty good income to be paid to wait for some form of recovery. It's a pretty good yield as long as the earnings are going to be there to cover the dividend. I suppose that's one of the fears, isn't it? One of the fears, yeah. yeah the, the earnings where you know, forecasts going forward are, are incorrect or overstated by, by mm. most analysts. And that's, that's certainly what, sure. what one of the key worries for the city is at the moment. And looking at the broader investment picture, why would you want to keep a, a large percentage of your portfolio in the financial sector given the opportunity cost there when you, know, you could be looking at sectors that are uh, rather more exciting or certainly less damaged? Well, that, that's what you know, the, sort of the active managers would say is, is that let's say there's another two quarters of, of share prices going down and if that's six months where it could be in a small mining company which would double in value in, the, in that time or, uh, or, or to put it in somewhere quite fancy and move back into the bank stocks when the, you have the classics or hockey stick curve going back up again and we know we can buy back into it. On the other hand, you're right, there is a good income coming from it you know, for, for the next few months certainly so there's an argument where, 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 where investors maybe should have a sort of bedrock of their, their portfolio in these things still. It's just a question whether or not they want the big returns or not. So I think overall then it's really a case of review your holdings if you have a substantial amount of your portfolio in financials. So, well, Dan, thanks very much for going through that. You have your article um, coming out in FT Money in Weekend FT on the 10th of November, so uh, listeners can look out for that. Uh, you can also send in your financial questions for us to answer by emailing us at ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. Still to come in the programme, how fund managers are venturing into emerging markets by buying small-cap shares. And open wide, we have some good news and bad news about dental costs. But first, exchange-traded funds. Now, there have been an awful lot of uh, these funds issued in recent weeks and months. And uh, John McLeod from Investors Chronicle joins us now because you've been looking at a particular new type of exchange-traded fund that rather than tracking a particular index or commodity, um, tries to be a little bit more intelligent. Um, John, how, uh, how do these work? That's right, Matthew. I mean, originally they were sort of cheap, low-cost trackers that were easily tradable, but there's a new variety that started to come to the UK, which they, they've been running in the US for a while, and they're basically 
using sort of fundamental based analysis. So I, I want to meet Bruce Bond from Invesco Parashares, and this is what he explained. Intelligent indexes seek to provide outperformance of a given market while providing precise exposure. Intelligent exposure indexes, the FTSE Rafi indexes, uh, seek to provide more intelligent exposure or better beta, we say, to the marketplace. And they do that through measuring the fundamentals of a company to determine how big is a company based on its own fundamentals rather than using cap weighting, which many funds or indexes do today, which we think at times can uh, overweight and underweight stocks based on their current place in the market. And so the, the intelligent one is a broader exposure and the dynamic is a more focused exposure on the, on the best stocks. That's exactly right. I mean, the two first funds we're bringing, uh, the FTSE Rafi US 1000 has 1,000 stocks, and the Dynamic Market US, which is the intelligent one, has 100 stocks, which will provide more targeted exposure to the US marketplace. And you'd be aiming for a slightly higher performance from, from the Dynamic one? That's exactly correct. I think that we target around a 300 to 400 basis points of outperformance for the Dynamic funds. Dynamic funds actually select securities based on their investment merit for outperformance. The exposure funds, uh, we're really looking at about 200 basis points of outperformance. John, so it sounds as if these new power shares are going to be more like actively managed funds. Is that that the case? That's right. They're rebalanced on on a more regular basis than the traditional ETFs. And the charges are a little bit higher. They're about 0.75% or 75 basis points, whereas the traditional ETFs are more about 0.4, sometimes even 0.2%. And how does that compare with the charges on, say, a traditional actively managed unit trust, for example? An active fund, you're talking more about 1.5% on average. So these, these power shares are going to give a degree of sort of fundamentals-based stock picking for lower cost than a normal unit trust? That's theory. I mean, and so far, I mean, the power shares ones have just come to the market, and there are also um, SPA market-grader ones, and they've shown quite good outperformance. In the US, the market-grader 100... I delivered 69% versus 37% from the S&P 500. So, Dan, it sounds as if these new exchange-traded funds can do what the tracker funds can't do, which is beat the index. Do you see this as part of a wider trend of increased issuance of these ETFs? Oh, absolutely, yeah. The market has doubled since the beginning of the year, pretty much. According to Morgan Stanley this week, the um, overall uh, global market for ETFs is forecast to go to $2 trillion by 2011 which is a phenomenal way to growth for what is effectively a tracking uh, vehicle. Uh, and it just shows what the UK market is, is capable of if it, if it kind of follows suit, I think. Yeah, it sounds like we've got a, got a long way to go. I mean, do you, um, do you think this could be you know, the beginning of the end for the, the traditional actively managed fund? I can't see it happening that way, really. I think uh, ETFs are at, at heart are just an asset allocation tool, really. If you want a bit of gold, you can buy a bit of gold. If you want a bit of oil, you can buy into a bit of oil. And really, they are, they are, and they, they will remain trackers for that reason. If you want a good, actively managed fund, or, 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 or with a fund manager who's, who's outperforming the index time and time again, you're always going to look to one of the big fund management houses. So, fund managers can uh, can rest easy in that case. I mean, if I could beg to differ slightly to put um, the point that they'd make, they'd say that market cap weighted indices, the sentiment and the growth is already built in. So, for example, Google um, makes up. 1.9% of the, US, the Russell US 1000 index, whereas in their power shares index, it's only 0.14%. Um, but basically, the bigger a stock is in an index, the maturity is already there, whereas by going fundamentals, 
they're kind of tapping into a sort of growth that's yet to, yet to come through. So, so you get performance that isn't going to be skewed or held back by these big index weightings. That's right. That, that's the theory of the, of the active ones as opposed mm. to the trackers. So there definitely seem to be some advantages there, both in terms of performance and cost. I think that's, that's absolutely right. But I, th- I think that the trackers, the, the traditional ETFs, are more of a mess in play. If you think oil's going to hit whatever price in whatever time, you put your money behind it and you, and you ride out the wave. But these ones are a bit different. And for those who are new to exchange-traded funds, uh, how do you go about buying them? They're funds, simple funds, listed onto, uh, on, the, on the London Stock Exchange. You can buy into them as you would do any other fund listed onto the, onto, on the exchange, really. Uh, they have a price, you buy in at that price, and then you see what happens next. And there's no stamp duty, which is a big advantage. So if you go to LondonStockExchange.com, you'll find them all there. Well, simple, low cost, no stamp duty. I sound like a, uh, uh, an asset class that's going to grow and grow over the, uh, the months and years to come. And if you'd like to know more about uh, exchange-traded funds, uh, look out for another of Dan's articles uh, in FT Money in the Weekend FT on the 10th of November. Coming up, we have good news and bad news on root canal work. I'm not really sure what the good news is going to be there, but we'll find out shortly. Before that, though, uh, emerging markets. If you're an investor in emerging markets, the name Mark Mobius of Templeton will mean an awful lot. He's considered the, the pioneer of getting into small growing markets first and making an awful lot of money for his investors. And he's got a new idea now, which is to set up a fund looking at small cap shares in these markets. So uh, we're joined now by Ellen Kelleher from FT Money. Ellen, you've been having a look into this area and um, actually got to speak to the great uh, Dr. Mobius uh, uh, earlier this week. Yeah, well, the way Mark Mobius explained it to me was that he said that, you know, when he and his colleagues were doing research on their other emerging markets funds, they found that there were about 17,000 listed companies that were worth less than a billion dollars that offered value for investors and were ripe for the picking. But the problem was no one was really willing to do the research required to invest in them. And that was sort of the brainchild for this fund, which he launched last month. Uh, And the fund has already been rather successful. He's raised almost $300 million since its launch in the beginning of October. So that's very impressive. It is. Well, uh, let's have a listen to, uh, to what he had to say to you. Well, if you look back to when we started in 1987, we're now 20 years old in our emerging markets uh, activity, there have been many ups and downs. We've suffered in November 93, 97, 2000. So there have been many bumps along the way. I mean, we've had downturns. But people who stayed in over that period, or even people who came in late in the game and bought at the, let's say, 97 highs are still sitting on some very nice profits. So our belief is that, number one, the key word is growth. The emerging markets economies are growing at double the rate of the developed markets, and it doesn't appear that things are going to change anytime soon in terms of that growth. There will be years, of course, where there's some sort of crisis and things turn down. That goes with the territory, and that includes economies as well as stocks and as well as currencies. But uh, over the long term, we believe emerging markets will uh, continue to grow at this fast rate. Uh, And it's very simple mathematics. You start from a very low base 
uh, the percentage increase is much easier to achieve. Uh, in addition to that, a very important factor is hitting us in terms of the demographics of these markets. The per capita income is moving up at a pretty fast pace, about double that of the developed countries. And the reason is not only because of very fast economic growth, but because the growth rate in the population is decelerating, it's coming down. So you're getting a combination of, let's say, 1% growth plus uh, a economic growth of anywhere in real terms, by the way, inflation-adjusted terms of anywhere between 4 and 10%. And in the case of India and China, the growth rates are in excess of 8%. In the case of China, it's 10 or more. So this kind of dynamic is what drives stock markets. Of course, stock markets tend to outperform and underperform the economy from time to time. But generally speaking, stock markets are a leading indicator. So that that's basically the situation as we see it. And so if you were a retail investor, Mark, where would you put your money? Well, if you're a retail investor, I'd first of all look look uh, back at what assets you have. I mean, obviously, secure a home is first order of business. Second order of business is to make sure you have enough cash in emergency. Then you can start thinking, depending on your age, uh, about equity investments. And then within the equity investment uh, arena, emerging markets should probably represent anywhere between 10 and 20%. That's normally the, the amount. Now, emerging markets as a percent of the market capitalization of the world is, is coming up, uh, depending on what numbers you look at, between 15 and 20%. So if you are relatively patient, young, willing to uh, ride with these markets, you're probably better off putting more than less, uh, 20% or more. If you are nearing retirement, then if you don't like the volatility of equities in general, you probably want to have less in equities and therefore less in emerging markets. But emerging markets still have lots of promise. And what countries do you like? Are you more bullish on China than India or Brazil than Chile, for example? Yes, if you look at our portfolios, you'll see that China and India are right up there. Uh, for our small cap funds, by the way, we have countries like Turkey, Egypt, Indonesia, South Africa. Those are important countries for us, but China and India still come out on top. And what stocks do you like in particular? Uh, we like what we call the three C's, uh, companies that are going to benefit from commodity increases. You know, commodity prices are high and will continue to stay high. Uh, secondly, we like consumer-oriented stocks because, as I mentioned, the per capita incomes are moving up at a nice pace. So we want to get exposed to the consumer. And thirdly, we like what we call convergence stories, companies that may be subject to a takeover or may be a takeover operator. In other words, uh, mergers and acquisitions benefit. Uh, that's basically what we're, we're looking at. In China in particular, do you like any, I mean, are there a few companies you could point to as for offering value? Well, if you look at our portfolio, I mean, here we're talking about not the small cap, but the big portfolios, you'll see that 
we have companies like PetroChina, we have companies like CNOC, the uh, China National Oil Company, uh, we have Sinopec, which is another oil company in China. Uh, those are, you know, important names for us. And and what's your take on Turkey? I mean, do you think it will become a pivotal part of sort of the emerging market story going forward? Or? Well, I wouldn't say pivotal because China and India are so overwhelming in terms of size, and then you have Brazil and Russia, the so-called BRIC countries. But Turkey is definitely up there in that second tier, uh, simply because they are moving so fast in their privatization and modernization of their economy under the, this new government. Uh, they have done a very good job of of moving ahead on privatization, which was really stuck in the doldrums for a long time. And they seem to be operating in a way which is designed to reform the economy to become closer to what Europe is. So I, I would say that uh, Turkey is right on track. And why did you decide to set up this new fund, Mark? Well, what we found is that in our database, which contains over 20,000 names, the largest portion were small cap names, names of companies with a market capitalization of less than $1 billion. That represents something like 80% of the total. And... For our normal emerging market funds, it was not easy to get exposed to these companies, which was the turnover, etc. So we thought, well, this is a great way to have a small cap fund to take advantage of these opportunities. And that's the reason why we saw the small cap fund. Helen, um, it strikes me from what uh, you were saying to uh, Mark Mobius that the, the rationale behind this fund is, is really that they have the means to do the research, but it's, it's still going to be quite a lot of hard work, I would have thought. The cynics would argue that liquidity constraints in the small cap sector of emerging markets would push people away from investing in these sorts of companies. But Mark Mobius doesn't seem to be particularly concerned by that because of the sheer volume of companies that are he thinks are viable investment options. I suppose, Steve, what one thing that some investors have been getting a little bit concerned about is the, is the sort of how long can the boom last? It can absolutely. seem about a bit of bubbly market. Yes, I mean, absolutely. We've been here before. Ten years ago, I remember Asian smaller company funds being launched after the Asian growth story. So aren't we seeing the same thing again? Emerging markets have supposedly decoupled from the rest of the world. Well, let's wait and see. But in the meantime, until they truly decouple or to get decouple investors' money, in the meantime, you've got the likes of Temple to another emerging markets talking up this small cap story. Don't forget how risky emerging markets small caps must be. Emerging markets themselves are risky. You're taking an extra degree of risk going into a specialist fund like this. And, of course, you could just go into a, a broad emerging markets fund which might have some small-cap exposure. That's true, although I think it's fair to say that, uh, that Templeton are making it perfectly clear that this is the higher-risk end of the emerging market spectrum. Yeah, and when I put that argument to Mark Mobius, he sort of suggested, well, you know, three years ago, the cynics on emerging markets said, oh, well, we should get out of emerging markets, the run is over, the bonanza is finished, but if I were to have pulled all my money out three years ago, I would have lost the gains that we've seen in the last three years. I mean... Emerging markets funds are reporting a growth rate of almost 60% this year, which is double that of 
what the developed world is offering us. I mean, I think it's quite good for investors that those sorts of, sorts of funds should be there, provided they understand the risks. I mean, small caps are, are volatile, emerging markets are volatile, so putting the two together, you can have doubling the volatility. But in theory, you can construct quite volatility portfolios and find, if you do the research well enough, find very low-risk stocks with, from those 1,700 companies. So it might work. So I suppose that that's what the, um, the calculation has to be. Do you think that uh, Dr Mobius and Templeton can do sufficient research in order to find those small-cap stocks that are going to continue to be a good bet? I mean, I suppose you need to know what you're getting, and, and that, that's the way that the fund's presented. I mean, are they going for a growth approach, or are they trying to reduce the risk and go for a kind of very balanced approach? Well, definitely one for the, the more adventurous and not faint-hearted investor, but uh, thank you all very much indeed for talking us through that. And finally today, we have our good news and bad news. Um, Steve, this is all to do with going to the dentist, isn't it? Which I, I fail to understand how you can possibly give us any good news. Well, that's right, Matthew. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is I was quoted 650 quid for two crowns. <laughs> The good news is that for all the talk of a reduction in the NHS service, if you can get an NHS dentist or NHS treatment, because remember, most dentists switch both ways, so to speak, um, you can get root canal treatment in England for £43.60 on the NHS. That is such good value. I, I'm going to go and almost a bargain, order some it? now. It's just it what you need. Even cheaper in Wales, I hasten to add. But isn't it, isn't it also the case that at the moment uh, uh, certain insurers have been playing upon the, this notion of bad news, not being able to get the NHS treatment, having to pay large sums of money to launch uh, dental insurance policies? Absolutely. There's a whole raft of different schemes, many of which, are, in broad terms, they're all insurance. I, they cover you for your costs. Some of them more like payment plans, though, you know, you put some money and it spreads the cost. Tesco's the most recent big name to come into this market earlier this year. The key thing with all these plans, though, is they all look relatively cheap. You're talking 10, 20 quid a month, not a lot of money. But of course, if you've got Tom Cruise style teeth, you don't even need to be spending that. Um, on the other hand, good things about these plans, no personal underwriting, so people with dodgy gnashes like me potentially get good value for our 200 quid a year or whatever. So if you've got uh, dodgy gnashes, as, um, well, Steve, you and I both have, do, but what do we need to look for, though, in the, in the policies? They, they, I'm sure they, they, that they can't be sort of sparkling and gleamy white. Sadly not. I mean, this is the issue, that um, you can pay you 200 pounds a year, but they're not necessarily going to cover you for everything. They might have all sorts of restrictions, like they'll only cover you for... 75, 80% of particular treatment or an actual, actual cash level of treatment. They might not even cover you for teeth widening to turn us into Tom Cruise. So, I mean, it really is a question of working through the numbers, but there are some useful uh, opportunities. If, you've got, if you're offered a scheme through work, for example, there's a good chance that that scheme won't, will cover pre-existing conditions, which are often excluded from insurance if you may have cover under a private medical insurance as well and, and various other bits and pieces. So in all cases, as with all insurance, it's worth not just going and saying, I'm going to just buy this extra policy. Check what you've got already, work out whether you're likely to get good value from it and don't exclude the option of self-insurance, as the experts say, i.e. just paying as you go or putting the money aside in a savings account and funding your new crowns that way. Well, there's always DIY dentistry, I suppose, but that's rather painful. There is DIY dentistry, and the, yes, 6% of people in a recent big public study said they had done DIY dentistry 
including a terrible story about a red hot needle. Oh, please don't, please don't, please don't tell us any more about the red hot needle. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to go and look at these insurance uh, options. I think not that I want to look like Tom Cruise, but uh, uh, I, I need my teeth fixed. So, uh, Steve, thanks very much uh, for that. Uh, that's all we've got time for uh, in this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you can email us your views and your questions uh, to ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com, and we'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and from all of the team at FT Money and Indeed Investors Chronicle, and it's goodbye from our podcast producers, Blue Barracuda. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM.